As we prepare for today's scripture reading, let us pray for illumination. Dear God, thank you for gathering us here today. In your presence, please open our hearts that we may hear your word and go about and go forth and show through our lives how your word works within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the... <coughs> and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now he said to him, in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the, d the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I shall do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, it is your voice, my son David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you For if a man finds his enemy, he will let him go away safe. 
So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, for by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring from me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of the Lord. One of the stories that has stuck with me from the height of the pandemic in 2020 was an interview on CNN with a Jewish emergency room doctor in California. A patient in critical condition arrived by ambulance suffering from COVID symptoms. He could still speak and he begged the doctor not to let him die. The doctor recognized that he needed to be intubated and as they prepped him for the procedure and took off his clothes, they realized that the patient was covered in, in Nazi tattoos and with an enormous swastika uh, across his chest. Uh, for the Jewish doctor, uh, this was a moment of crisis. For the first time in his career, he said, he hesitated before treating a patient. In the interview, he spoke very movingly about how the pandemic had, had worn on him uh, to the point where he, he was tempted not to treat this patient in the same way uh, that he would anyone else. Uh, but after a few moments, he did collect himself and he saved the man's life, uh, despite all their differences. The doctor assumed that this patient probably hated him as, as a Jew, uh, but he was totally vulnerable and the doctor chose to have mercy on him. We're in the middle of a series on the life of David. And in our text today, we find David uh, going through an experience that is not too different from that doctor's. We find King Saul at a moment of vulnerability, and David chooses mercy. And today, we want to think about how this happens and, and what we can learn from David's experience. Why would someone not take advantage of their enemy at their moment of weakness. There are three things that we need to see. The first is David's decision not to attack Saul when he has the chance in verses 1 to 7. Second is David's defense of his innocence in verses 8 to 15. And third is David's destiny as the king in verses 16 to 22. So three things this morning. David's decision... David's defense, and David's destiny. Let's start with David's decision. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, Saul has been intent on proving that he is David's enemy. Last week in chapter 18, uh, we heard about Saul trying to kill David out of his jealousy and his bitterness. And in the following chapters, there are several other murder attempts and schemes to get David killed. And now David is on the run. He's in the wilderness. He has about 600 men with him, and Saul takes 3,000 of his best soldiers uh, to chase after David. And as they're entering this territory, Saul comes into the cave, and he's exposed, he's vulnerable, 
And there is every reason for us to expect David to take advantage of this situation. It's his chance to defeat his enemy. After all, Saul is actively trying to kill him. And what's more, David's men who are with him there in the cave, they urge him to strike. To them, it's obvious what should happen. And they even can claim to have God on their side. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, a, a problem here is that nowhere in the chapters that precede this in 1 Samuel do we hear the Lord giving an oracle or, or a prophetic word like this one that uh, David's men uh, speak. It doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened, but it suggests uh, that they're likely imagining something that they wished God had said to, to help David along with what uh, they think is needed in this moment. So you can sense the, the pressure that David is under to kill Saul. There's the internal pressure. I mean, he's running for his life. And there's the external pressure of his men who, who want him to take this opportunity that, that might not come again. It's a critical decision moment for David. It's a, it's a test of character that, that we all face in, in our own way. What decision do we make when we're encouraged to go against our conscience? What do we do when no one is watching us? Or when it's easier to go along with what everyone else is doing? David makes his and even this he regrets because he realizes that his conscience calls him to honor Saul as the king. He won't attack Saul. And he won't let his men attack Saul either. What would you do if you were in David's shoes? One person uh, who has wrestled deeply uh, with such questions of mercy and justice in our own world today is Brian Stevenson. If you don't know him, uh, Brian Stevenson is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative based in Montgomery, Alabama. And EJI defends people who are trapped in the criminal justice system, especially children and the poor and the wrongly condemned. And in his memoir, Just Mercy, made into a movie a few years ago, Stevenson recounts his decades of work with these men and women uh, who've been cruelly mistreated, who've been falsely accused, imprisoned, too often wrongly executed. And having seen everything that he has seen, uh, Stevenson could be very bitter. But if you ever have the chance to hear him talk, you know, he expresses compassion and forgiveness and gentleness in everything that he says. And in his book, he talks about how moving near the broken has exposed his own brokenness and taught him about our common need for mercy. He writes, there is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy. And perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things 
that you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. He's saying that if you want to be a person of mercy or compassion, that you must have some inner resource that leads to it. What did this look like for David? This brings us to our second point today, David's defense. Saul leaves the cave, and in this part of Israel near the Dead Sea, there are these steep ravines uh, where you find these caves. And so probably what happened is David waited and let Saul walk all the way down and then all the way back up the other side of this ravine, and then David called out to him across the distance. And in verses 9 to 15, David makes a speech to Saul, and he says three things. First, he claims his innocence. He appeals to Saul. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? He shows him the corner of the robe to prove that he could have harmed Saul and chose not to do so. And then he says as clearly as possible in verse 11, there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you. So that's the first thing. He, he tells Saul that he is innocent. Second, in verses 12 and 15, David calls on the Lord to judge between him and Saul. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David knows that he is innocent and he calls on God to be the judge in his case. This is a very formal request that he makes of the Lord. It's like they're standing in God's courtroom on the side of the hill and David is saying, may the judge rule in my favor. And it, because, it's because he believes that God will do that that he can say the third thing that he says here. He commits to a path of nonviolence towards Saul. He says it twice. In verse 12, but my hand shall not be against you. And again in verse 13, but my hand shall not be against you. Saul will try and kill him, and David is committed to his decision not to take revenge because he trusts in the Lord as his defender and judge. So often, uh, we approach uh, God like David's men, using him for our own purposes to get what we want, what we think is the good thing. But David instead trusts God to justify him so he doesn't have to take vengeance himself. I find that most people that I meet believe that being merciful and forgiving is a good idea. The challenge that we face, isn't it, is putting that into practice. When we're facing a hard person in our life or a painful memory, or we've been offended. It's often the case that we're committed in theory. As C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. 
You need a deeper well of grace to draw from, and that's what we find in the gospel. The Christian gospel offers the ultimate rationale for what we see here in the life of David, this act of mercy. Let me explain this through this long quote that I put on the reflection page today, on page four, uh, from Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf uh, is a Croatian theologian at Yale Divinity School, and his well-known book, Exclusion and Embrace, arose out of his own struggle as a Christian during the war in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Uh, Serbian fighters were sending Croatians into concentration camps. They were burning down churches, raping women, destroying cities. And as a Croatian and a Christian, Wolf wondered how he could possibly love his enemies as Jesus had commanded. And out of his struggle came uh, this insight in, in the quote. Let me read it. Forgiveness flounders, he says, because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. In the presence of God, our rage over injustice may give way to forgiveness, which in turn will make the search for justice for all possible. Now, what is Wolf saying? He's saying that we all naturally see ourselves as innocent victims and others as the monstrous perpetuators of injustice. But if you stand in the presence of Jesus and you believe that he was crucified for you, then you know that you're a a sinner who needs a savior and that you must see other people as those for whom Jesus was also willing to give his life. The message of the cross humbles you because it declares that all of us are worthy of judgment and needed Jesus to die for us but it also fills you up because it reveals the power of God's suffering, self-sacrificial love, the love that brings life out of death. If you believe that God is a God of justice, then you will seek justice for all. You will be attentive to the poor and to the marginalized. But if you follow the crucified Messiah, then you will also love your enemies as Jesus has loved you. This is because you can know, like David, that you have the ultimate defense. No matter who you face or what trials that you have to endure, you can believe that you stand in God's courtroom and he declares you innocent and righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. And when you go to him for your respect, your value, your identity, your meaning, then you can stop looking for those things from other people. 
Instead, you're free to love them as people just like yourself, people who know their sin and their brokenness and their need for grace. A character in Herman Melville's Moby Dick says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. One final point today. We've talked about David's decision and his defense. Finally, let's, let's consider David's destiny. David is destined to be the king. Now, this has been clear uh, in 1 Samuel for a long time, but we find something very surprising in verses 16 to 22. It's Saul who declares that David will be king. In some ways, this is the most shocking part of the story today. You know, who would have expected King Saul to declare David is righteous and affirm his coming kingship? It's such a human portrayal of Saul. I, I love this. Uh, he has enormous power. He has the privilege of his office. Uh, he has thousands of troops at his command. But when he comes face to face with David, he weeps, his heart is pierced, he admits the truth. This is a good reminder that the Bible never divides people into those who are simply good on the one side and, and bad on the other side. We don't find any tribalism here. Instead, the line between good and evil always runs through every human heart. And for Christians, Every human being is made in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth. And for Christians, every human being is a sinner to be saved only by grace. There is no one who is so far gone that they are beyond the hope of repentance. And when you approach people in this way, like Saul, you can recognize their complexity and you can have compassion on their weakness. But sometimes people will disappoint you. And Saul is such a person. He does feel sorry in this moment. But it will not last. And soon he'll be back chasing David. He's very unpredictable and changeable. Yet in the life of David, we discover that even Saul's unpredictability will be used by God for his larger purposes. You might wonder... If David's destiny is to become the king, so that even Saul admits it, why does David have to become the king this way? He goes through so much. According to one estimate, uh, he's on the run from Saul for seven years. Why did it have to be so hard? I, I believe that the answer is actually very clear. There is no question that David will be king. But how he becomes the king matters deeply. He will not take the throne through violence against Saul. He will suffer and struggle in the wilderness, even though he is innocent. He won't take revenge. He walks in faith that God will bring vindication and justice for him in the end. As I've suggested a few times in the series, the, the real hero in the life of David is not David, it's Jesus. And here, once again, we see David pointing us to him. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that there is no question 
that Jesus is the messianic king. But how he becomes the king matters. Like David, he will not take the throne through violence. He goes the way of the cross. He turns the other cheek. He loves his enemies. He does good to those who persecute him. He goes even into the grave, trusting that God will bring vindication and justice for him. And then God does vindicate him by raising him from the dead and enthroning him as the risen and ascended Lord of all. Friends, when you believe that you have a king like him, then you can trust him no matter what your circumstances. Let, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't get help if you're in a situation where you're being hurt or abused. It's not what I'm saying at all. The call to justice is real. And if you come to me or, or someone else here uh, with your need, we will help you and we will come alongside you. You're not alone. And this is what allows us to, to help one another in any situation. In the person and work of Jesus, we find a savior who knows our weakness. Even when we turn away, he moves towards us in mercy and grace. He knows our sorrows and our struggles, and he promises to bring even us into resurrection life in his new creation. Jesus is the one who says to you today, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray today that you would help us to see you as our defender and king so that we might be filled with a confidence that comes not from ourselves, uh, but from our trust in you. May we know your grace so that we might love as you love, give as you give, and serve as you serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.